Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your host, Kimbui Bomani, and we're back after a week-long hiatus due to holiday season, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and welcome to a brand new year. 2021 is a 2021 is among us, and it's a new opportunity and a new chapter for a variety of individuals on this place called Earth to kind of redeem themselves and turn the page on the old chapter in their lives and create a new one. And we all know how 2020 was for the collective. It was a tough year in terms of loss of people that we know, whether it's family, celebrities, things of that nature. But even through the throes of fire and ashes, had a lot of great promising things for a variety of individuals. Success was abundant just as much as ineptitude and failure within the past year. But in 2021, COVID-19 is still among us, but we're still trying to power through, create our own identity, create our own legacy and agenda that we feel can progress us towards brighter days ahead. And towards that, we can have a unified appreciation for this fact. And among other things, we have sports to talk about, such as the NFL playoffs is among us. A brand new seeding factor is before every football fan out there. Instead of six playoff teams that we've been accustomed to for the past few decades, we now have seven. There's only one bye, and it's given to the top overall seed from each conference. So the Green Bay Packers and the Kansas City Chiefs, congratulations on accomplishing that amazing feat. They won't have to play on Wild Card Weekend, but the two seeds will. And while in the past, the likes of the Buffalo Bills and the New Orleans Saints would have a bye along with the top seed, they won't have it. They'll have the opportunity to play, if they stay alive, two consecutive home games in the Wild Card Weekend and a divisional round before possibly having to go maybe across country to play the top seed in their respective conference. If the top seed is even there as well, maybe those teams will have the opportunity to play three consecutive home games because the top seed is eliminated from the new playoff picture altogether. And we're going to go step-by-step with these games. First off, we have the Buffalo Bills and the Indianapolis Colts. We're going to start from the AFC. I might add the AFC playoff picture. And the Buffalo Bills are coming into this playoffs red hot. This is their second consecutive postseason appearance. And I was very high on the Bills before anybody else was prior to the season even starting. I said that for the Bills to take the next step this year, it'd have to come down to how the progression of Josh Allen went. And he was a guy that progressed very well from his rookie year to his second year, 20 touchdowns, nine interceptions, elevated his completion percentage damn near to 60% almost. And this year, he leaps and bounds improved when no one else saw it, completing 69.2% of his passes for over 400, for over 4,500 yards, 37 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and a 7.9 yards per attempt passing dynamic. And he had, in my opinion, one of the best receivers in all of football. Obviously, Devontae Adams deserves his roses as he should. He's also had a phenomenal year. But the individual that led the league in catches and receiving yards was not Devontae Adams. It was Buffalo's Stephon Diggs. And what a trade that the Bills were able to execute and implement within their offense in flying colors when they made a deal for Stephon Diggs last offseason. And it's paid out in wonders. 127 catches, 1,535 yards, eight touchdowns, and he averages 95.9 yards per game as a receiver. And this is one of the main reasons why the Buffalo Bills offense is taking the next step. Josh Allen has put it all together in terms of being a more complete passer in terms of proficiency, accuracy, ball placement from a week-in, week-out perspective. 
and he's had that dynamic receiver on the outside that helps make his game come all the way together into the form of outstanding consistency. And that's something you can appreciate. Now, the big thing about the Buffalo Bills is while their offense took the unbelievable next step to elevate this team from, you know, not just a contender to win their division, but a contender to come out the AFC, a true dark horse. Their defense kind of lagged behind for most of the year. Somewhat, they turned the corner late December. And from a statistical standpoint, everything evened out towards the end. From a total defense perspective, they've allowed only 352.2 yards a game. That's 13th in the league. Their pass defense allows 232.9 yards per game. That's 13th in the NFL. The run defense is below average. It could be the Achilles heel. It's what many Buffalo Bills fans have stated online as being their Achilles heel as a team stopping the run. They give up 119.6 yards per game. Points allowed, 23.4. Middle of the row in sacks with 38. But in the top five in takeaways with 26 overall. And that's an amazing feat to have, an amazing statistic to have under your belt. Tredavious White leads the team with three picks. And so when I look at this Buffalo Bills team, they're explosive offensively, but they do have a couple of things that could possibly derail them just a bit when you're going up against a team like the Indianapolis Colts. Now, the Colts have one of the more underrated pass rushing defensive tackles in the league named DeForest Buckner. He had nine and a half sacks this past season, and coming into the playoffs, he can be that interior pass rusher that can knock Allen off of his square as a passer. Now, granted, Josh Allen has the great ability to be a guy that utilizes his legs to run out of pressure or to escape pressure from within the pocket to progress on the move into in terms of delivering completions on the move, like I just stated. But Bugner can be that guy that can disrupt things from a pass rushing perspective, from a run defensive perspective, things of that nature. And also another element that nobody's really talked about, the last time Josh Allen was in a playoff game, he performed very well in the first half, and then he didn't perform very well in the second half. And as the game got tighter, he pressed. And in all three of their losses, Josh Allen didn't play well. Now, coinciding with the fact that I stated early on in this topic that Buffalo's defense kind of declined a little bit and they needed every bit of Josh Allen's evolution as a passer for this team to win 13 games like they did this year. When Allen struggled, they didn't win. He didn't play particularly well against the Tennessee Titans. I think that was one of his few multi-pick games throughout the season. When they played the Kansas City Chiefs, that was during a time where Josh Allen's going through a very tough shoulder injury. And he played in that game. He wasn't particularly well as a performer. Didn't throw for over 200 yards. I think he didn't even throw past 150. It was a tough outing for them against KC. And then against Arizona, he threw a couple interceptions. He let the he let the Cardinals hang around with his turnovers. Now he made up for it towards the end by scoring what appeared to be the go-ahead touchdown to Stephon Diggs, only for Kyler Murray to have a Hail Murray moment, one of the highlights of the 2020 NFL season that allowed the Cardinals to come away with the victory. So when he hasn't played particularly well, they've allowed themselves to be susceptible to defeat. And the Colts have a defense that's no nonsensical. They're a team that can get after you. They can create takeaways. Um, They don't turn the ball over. But I think the biggest thing for the Colts is their offense may be their best defense. Now, defensively, from a statistical perspective, they're up there in terms of being able to not allow teams to gain a ton of yards on them offensively. They're eighth in the league in total defense. Their pass defense is susceptible to get burned. They're 20th in the league in pass defense, um, but they're in the top two in run defense. Now, that can be a misleading stat because that could coincide with the fact that teams realize, hey, we don't need to run on the Colts 
because their secondary is kind of suspect. Uh, they are top 10 in points allowed. They are top 15 in sacks. They have 40. They're also top five in takeaways. So you have two of the top five takeaway defenses in the league going against each other. So this game could ultimately come down to which opponent maximizes their possessions the fullest, which team's able to not turn the ball over, drive the length of the field, and not get three, but get seven. Now, when we talk about the Indianapolis Colts, they're in a precarious predicament. They're a team that's coming into the playoffs, really heading into week 17. They weren't even in the playoff picture. But thanks in large part because their opponent in the postseason, the Buffalo Bills, were able to decimate the Miami Dolphins in week 17. They're here. But they're not here because of their new quarterback play. Now, coming into the year when they got Phillip Rivers, he was supposed to be the guy who was going to take the Colts back to the playoff promised land. And for lack of better terms, he has in some games. But during this last stretch of the season, it's been rookie running back Jonathan Taylor being able to put his best foot forward in terms of being able to be one of the elite rushers in the game. He finished the league number three in rushing, um, was the best rushing running back out of all the rookies in his draft class. And he was able to accomplish this with 232 carries over 1,169 yards, 11 touchdowns, and he did it on five yards per carry. That's an amazing feat. And they're going to need to rely on not only him, but the combination between him and Naeem Himes to be able to get things done. And I think that's going to be influential, not just that they are able to gain compensatable rush yards as an offensive unit, but to just dominate the time of possession to keep a hot offense like Buffalo on the sidelines. And I feel like that factor can allow the Colts to not only compete in this football game, but to the point where they can, not, where they can challenge for a victory. Nonetheless, I do think the deciding factor is going to be that there's going to be times where Indianapolis won't be able to sustain running the football at a high octane level. And under Frank Wright, they've shown the tendency to get away from the running game when they kind of get down and try to rely on the short intermediate pass game of Phillip Rivers. Rivers has shown the susceptibility to throw some gifts. And they were up 28-7 the last time I saw them against the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they let Pittsburgh back in it because they kind of abandoned the running game because it was stopped a little bit by Pittsburgh's front seven. They tried to put the ball in the hands of Phillip Rivers to get things done, to help them get over the top. That didn't happen. That allowed Pittsburgh to get back in it. And ultimately, Pittsburgh won that football game. I see the same thing happening. I don't think the Colts jump out to a huge lead, but I do think it gets relatively close. I do think they do decide to put the ball in the hands of Phillip Rivers, and he inevitably won't execute to the best of his ability. Therefore, I see Buffalo finding a way to get this victory. It's going to be a close game. One of the more intriguing games of wildcard weekend, but I expect Buffalo to find a way to get it done, get their first playoff victory in over 20 years, and to go to the divisional round. And we haven't heard the divisional round and the Buffalo Bills in the same sentence before. I was maybe two in the 90s. Up next, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns. Number three seed Steelers versus the number six Browns. And for the third and final time in this 2020-2021 seasonal installment, the Browns and the Steelers will meet. And the victor is going to continue to have a season while the loser season will all be finished in this NFL chapter. Now, when we look at this Pittsburgh Steelers team. They were the team that got off to the hot start. They were 11-0, and they only won one of their last five games. They had a lot of bad losses. One in particular within the division against the Bengals uh, and against the Washington football team that although did make the playoffs, they are a seven and nine football team. They didn't look particularly well against the Colts. They almost lost that one as well, but they were able to come back doing large part because of the Colts self-destructing as a unit offensively. 
and as a defensive unit too to get that. So you can say they haven't been playing their best football. Now, their last game against the Cleveland Browns, they didn't play a lot of their starters, and they made that a very competitive game. And maybe if Mason Rudolph is able to connect on that two-point conversion try, it's a tie game, ton of pressures on Cleveland to execute. Maybe that's a different type of uh, gaming trajectory in itself. Maybe we don't have this matchup that we're talking about right now, but we do. And we look at the Steelers statistically, offensively, they're much maligned. Now, Big Ben is still their quarterback. He was able to have a pretty productive season from a touchdown-interception ratio perspective and from a yardage perspective as well and from a completion percentage perspective. But this team has a middle-of-the-road passing attack that doesn't have a true vertical threat down the field, due in large part because Big Ben's arm, when it comes to his deep accuracy ability, while once was a strength in his prime years, is somewhat of an inconsistent weakness. At times, it can get there like an accurate loaf by like an accurate bullet. Other times it can get there to the defense like an accurate loaf of bread. And when you have an inconsistent passing attack like that, usually you want to lean on your running game to kind of even things out and provide a sense of balance and easy passing lane opportunities. The Pittsburgh Steelers don't have that. In fact, they have the worst rush defense in the league. 84.4 yards per game. That's dead last in all of football. And they're doing it behind running back James Conner, who's kind of been in and out of the lineup. And when he has played and when he has been healthy, he's north of 700 yards, six touchdowns and 169 carries. But, you know, Pittsburgh's calling card like it was a few years prior when he had Ben Roethlisberger, Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell, otherwise known as the Killer Bees. Their offense was their calling card. Not this installment of Pittsburgh. It's back to traditional Pittsburgh football that helped build this franchise into the perennial Super Bowl winners that they are accustomed to being in NFL history. It's their defense. Total defense, they give up 305.8 yards per game. That's third in the league. They're the third best pass defense. They have a top 15 run defense. That's 11. They're third in points allowed. They're number one in sacks and are number two in takeaways. And we have a defensive line. Their front seven has been the strength of their team for the past two years. And TJ Watt leads the league in sacks. He has 15. We have a playmaker in Watt. We have a ball hockey safety in Mika Fitzpatrick. Defensively, you can do a multitude of things very well. And when Joe Hayden is in the lineup and he's healthy, he does a pretty good job of shattering a team's number one receiver and allowing the other cornerbacks around him to benefit off of bracket coverage and that elite pass rush. Now, what the Steelers have been susceptible of being, let's, let me let backtrack. What the Steelers have been susceptible of in terms of their opposition or just in terms of being able to garner up a wide variety of defeats the past five weeks. They beat themselves, and when their pass rush hasn't been able to get home, their secondary is easy to be had. Now, Deontay Johnson leads the team in receiving yards and touchdowns. Juju Smith-Schuster actually leads the team in catches with 92. Now, anytime you hear a receiver with 92 catches, you think, ah, for sure they accomplished 1,000 yards. Receiving as well, Juju Smith did not. Deontay Johnson 88 catches, 923 yards, seven touchdowns. He averages 61.5 yards per game. But the issue with Deontay Johnson is he'll make the tough contested catches, but drop the routine ones. He's one of the top five receivers and drops might be up there in the top two if him and C.D. Lamb haven't changed places because those two have been battling for the league league and drops throughout the year. But dropping the football has been a problem with Pittsburgh. And I think it coincides with the fact that defenses don't respect the arm strength of Big Ben, and they also don't respect the running game. So it allows... Big Ben to have to throw amongst tight man coverage, which means receivers, as they're going for the ball to catch, are being smothered by defensive backs. 
And that opens the door for opportunities for receivers to drop the ball, whether they're dropping it because of lack of concentration, because they're freeing a hit, or they're looking towards making a play before the ball is even in their hands. Those kind of factors are able to coincide with the high level of drop amounts that this team has been able to garner the past really month and a half. Now, when we look at Cleveland side, got to give it up to Kevin Stefanski, and I have to give it up to Baker Mayfield <coughs> and Nick Chubb. Now, we look at this Cleveland Browns offense, they're pretty average, and they're not that great of a passing team, although Baker Mayfield, from a statistical perspective, has done a good enough job So I think get a contract extension down the road. For sure, he's been able to exercise his contract. He'll be a future Brown quarterback for the next two to three years off of what he was able to accomplish this season. He had a lot of memorable games. He had that five-touchdown performance against Cincinnati, that explosion he had against the Tennessee Titans that really etched in stone how much of a true playoff contender Cleveland was, as well as the Monday night football performance he had when individual rival Lamar Jackson, they went toe-to-toe. From a statistical perspective, you could say Baker Mayfield might have even outplayed Lamar, even though the Ravens were able to come out with the victory. But this Cleveland Browns offense goes where the running game goes, and they're a top-three rushing team. As a matter of fact, from a specific from a specific standpoint, they're the third-best run team in the league. They average 148.4 yards rushing a game. They do a very good job of keeping the turnover differential in their favor. Plus five, it's ninth in football, and they don't give the football away. Only 16 giveaways. And what the Cleveland Browns have done since really the month of November through December is taking the ball out of Baker Mayfield's hands as the primary decision maker and has let their offense dictate its productivity behind the legs of Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. Now, if Kareem Hunt wasn't afforded the opportunity of running against the New York Jets, as in being neutralized by the Jets, he would have joined Nick Chubb as an 1,000-yard rusher. What a great accomplishment it is to have to have two 1,000-yard rushing running backs on your team. That was not able to happen, but Nick Chubb was able to eclipse 1,000 yards by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin, and that's an amazing accomplishment considering the fact that Chubb was out for around a month due to a lower leg injury that a lot of people thought could have been very serious. Chubb finished the year with 1,067 yards on the ground, 12 touchdowns on 5.6 yards per carry. Now, fire meets water now granted let's be real Pittsburgh from a statistical standpoint can be had on the ground as a run defense they're not that elite as a run defense as they are via the pass but they still are a formative front seven and they're still our front seven to be reckoned with this game's ultimately going to come down to how the Pittsburgh Steelers are able to neutralize Cleveland Browns offense in particular on the ground because when the ground game is going at a high rate they're able to play kid off of that very productively through the air via play action. I expect Pittsburgh's front seven full strength, fully healthy. They kind of do what they've been doing all year, control the line of scrimmage, which will knock Cleveland's rushing game out of whack for the most part. That'll force Baker Mayfield to have to make plays with his arm. I don't think that will be a successful recipe. And a new wrinkle that's been added within this game, Cleveland's Kevin Stefanski, their head coach, won't be coaching this football game as he is, uh, well, as he is. He garnered COVID. He didn't garner. He has COVID-19. He has COVID. And NFL protocol showcases that once a staff member or a player on the team gets coronavirus, they go through a 10-day quarantine before, they be, before they're able to be reevaluated to see if they can join the team. By that time, that 10-day 10 10 period is done. I don't expect the Cleveland Browns to be a playoff participant anymore. I don't even think they're going to be the Pittsburgh Steelers if Stefanski was involved. But when you don't have one of the great head coaching offensive play callers in the game, 
with you as an asset, it kind of constricts what you're able to do or what you're able to be comfortable in running. I know their offensive coordinator is going to take over the play calling duties on that side of the football, but it won't have the same wrinkle and confidence that Stefanski was able to breathe within the life of that Browns offense. That's a factor that has to be included as well. I do expect Pittsburgh to come out victorious. It's a pretty good match for the Steelers. I thought for a moment they may have to play a long-time competitive postseason divisional rival known as the Baltimore Ravens. I think that would have been a recipe of disaster, and that would have been a one-and-done exit. They lucked up and got the inexperienced Browns. I think this is going to be a slugfest, but I think eventually Pittsburgh pulls away, wins by about two touchdowns, and moves on to the divisional round. We're more than likely to either play Buffalo or Kansas City. We'll see how that turns out. And last but not least, in the AFC, we have probably the best matchup of wildcard weekend, a rematch of the divisional round playoff game from a year ago between the Tennessee Titans, who are the fourth seed, and the fifth seeded Baltimore Ravens. Now, for a moment, now before I get to Baltimore, let me address the fact that I had four former playoff teams from a year ago not making the playoffs this season. And I made a whole article about it on my Medium page, posted on Twitter, and I got to give myself a pat on the back. I got three of the four correct. I said Philadelphia wouldn't be a playoff team. I didn't expect Philadelphia to be this bad, but I actually predicted the fact that New England and Minnesota wouldn't make the playoffs. Said New England was probably going to be a 7-9 team. That's two years away. They finished 7-9. And, and I say Minnesota doing large part because Dalvin Cook's health is always up and down. He was in and out the line of firm, not a ton of games, but enough games to where the Vikings were able to get those crucial W's that they probably needed as the season went on. And they were breaking in a whole new secondary that was going to take time to get used to. It took about midway through the year before those guys were able to placate off each other to a point where there was comfortability and a high success rate. But then even then, towards the end of the season, they started to go back to their earlier season ways. But what I, who I didn't get correct was the Tennessee Titans. I didn't think Tennessee could do it again. I thought defensively they'd take a step back. They lost Jarrell Casey, lost Logan Ryan. You can arguably make a case that Casey was their best defensive lineman. You can arguably make a case that Logan Ryan was their best secondary player. And they did miss him because Tennessee defensively is horrible. They're not nowhere. No, they're not. They're nowhere near what they were a year ago. And as a matter of fact, with these stats in front of me, they're a tough read for the listener to hear. And they're a tough pill to swallow if you're a Tennessee Titan fan. Now, from a total defense perspective, they're 20th in the NFL. They give up almost 400 yards per game. Their pass defense is horrendous. It's 29th in the league, 277.4 yards per game. The run defense might be their only shining star from a defensive perspective. They're 19th there, but they give up 120 yards per pop. They don't rush the passer. 19 sacks. That is the third worst in all of football. By far the worst out of all the playoff teams participating in this new NFL playoff format. But what they do do very well is they take the ball away. 23 takeaways, that's top 10 in the NFL, seventh in particular. Now, I've seen the Titans play a few times. The only thing that I've seen promising throughout the year is Malcolm Butler is by far their best corner. Uh, I was kind of surprised that a lot of people were riding the Adoree Jackson wave in terms of Titan fans who thought he was a success story that they generally needed. When, when you look at Adoree's stats, he doesn't get picks. He's an amazing athlete, but he's not the most technically sound corner. Malcolm Butler isn't an amazing athlete, but he's more technically sound than Adoree Jackson. And for the most part, every time I've looked at these guys play, he's always in the hip pocket of the opponent's number one receiver. And he plays pretty sound coverage. At least he's done so this season. Now, Tennessee, their defense, in my opinion, is the reason why they're going to be one and done. 
But I predicted that their defense, I didn't expect them to take this substantial of a fall, but I thought their defense wouldn't be as good as it was a year ago because of losing those two key vets. And I was wondering, could offensively they sustain the amount of productivity they had a year before? Ryan Tannehill had a career year. Derrick Henry had a career year. Could they do it again? And they could. Now, Tannehill probably didn't have the yards that he had passing-wise, but 33 touchdowns to seven interceptions was around a touchdown to interception ratio that he had from a year ago, which means he was able to sustain a high level of success as well as complete 65% of his passes. Now, Derrick Henry, he defeated all odds. In terms of what he was able to accomplish last year, he doubled that by far. He accomplished a 2K rushing season as a running back. It's very, very rare to do. He did it on almost 400 carries. 378 carries to be exact. He averaged 5.4 yards per carry. And the receiving rise, got to give it up. A.J. Brown continued his ascension as one of the top premier young receivers in all of football. But while Corey Davis was nearing that 1,000-yard receiving plateau, Brown was able to eclipse it yet again, as well as get 11 touchdown catches. So they took the next step offensively. Now their pass offense, although Tannehill has great numbers, is not elite team-wise they're the 23rd best pass offense in all of football which further proves my point that Tannehill's success within Tennessee is due in large part because of having number 22 behind him that 247 load of grown man opens up a variety of passing avenues for this offense to be successful they are a glorified play action team in comparison to Baltimore who their pass is obviously predicated off of their run but they're run first now Lamar Jackson the running MVP Let's be honest with ourselves. He still has to improve as a passer. And while I do think his athleticism and his dynamics as a runner will keep him alive in the NFL long enough to reach a second contract to where he'll be probably one of the top five highest played players in all of football. I think from a sustainability sustainability perspective in his NFL career, I don't think he'll last. But that's another topic for another day. As for the Ravens, doing large part because of Lamar's limitations as a passer, they're the worst passing team in all of football but doing large part because Lamar Jackson is a dynamic runner that are number one rushing team in all of football. They run the ball so well that they average 191.9 yards per game. They're a top 10 scoring offense. Their average score per margin is the best in all of football, 10.3. They're a front running team. But the main reason why I think they'll be able to beat Tennessee this year in comparison to last year is because I just don't know if the Titans have the personnel that they had a year prior to contain Lamar. What they did against Lamar Lash was kind of create a box where it constricted his ability to be able to be effective out of the read option, kept him inside the pocket, kept him from bouncing on the outside on desired runs and exploding upfield. They don't have that guy. And I think Casey made that happen because he provided a ton of push up the middle that forced Lamar to probably reach the edges a lot more frequently than he is accustomed to because Lamar is a guy that doesn't want to run up the middle. That middle wasn't really there when Casey was there. So do they have those linebackers? Do they have those productive entities? I don't think so. Tennessee has shown against the teams like Houston and they've shown against a variety of teams. They can be run on and Baltimore doesn't mind grinding it down your face and make you eat it and bludging it within you. And these teams also met in the regular season and you know, Baltimore had five L's, and about four of them were on Lamar. He didn't play particularly well, and he opened the door for teams who were down at points in the game to come back because of his turnovers, his inability to make, you know, rudimentary passes, things of that nature. And so when they played the Titans, they were beating them. But they led the Titans back in it because I think Lamar had an odd interception when Baltimore threw it in the fourth quarter while they were ahead. 
allowed Tennessee to throw, get a touchdown pass of their own. And then in overtime, Derrick Henry exerted his will. There's no denying it. Derrick Henry owns Baltimore. But in this game in particular, Derrick Henry, I think, can be neutralized enough to where Ryan Tannehill is going to have to make the throws necessary for these guys to win the football game. And when he doesn't, that means their defense is going to have to step up and make stops. This Titan defense is easily the worst defense in the playoffs. And they're going to get exposed. And this is why I think Baltimore gets their revenge. Lamar gets the monkey off his back. And Baltimore wins their first playoff game in the Lamar Jackson era. And, hey, that's a blessing for Lamar. Might be a curse, though, because if they do win, all signs point towards the fact that they'll play Kansas City. Kansas City is a horrible matchup for Baltimore. Now, on to the NFC. The NFC playoff, you know, picture, wild card sequences are a lot more weaker in terms of competition than the AFC. For starters, we have the number two New Orleans Saints versus the number seven Chicago Bears. Now, the Chicago Bears, probably the worst team in the playoffs. I I think they're even worse than the Washington football team because at least the Washington football team has an elite defense. Chicago's once elite defense from two years ago has kind of fell outside of the top 10, so they're a slightly above average defense you always have to pay homage to the dynamic playmaking ability of Khalil Mack, Eddie Jackson, Kyle Fuller, you know, guys of that nature, Akeem Hicks. But the Saints are rolling. Well, coming into the playoffs, they were rolling where they didn't have Elvin Kamara, they didn't have Michael Thomas, and they took the heart of the Panthers. A Panther team that prior to that game played other playoff teams like the Chiefs, the Packers, the Saints the first time pretty well. And they just exerted their will. Ty Montgomery eclipsed 100 yards rushing. So with that in mind, this Saints team, they're getting Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara back. You know, Kamara wasn't able to play the season finale because he had COVID. Um, all signs point to he is expected to pass COVID protocol and be able to play in the playoff game. Michael Thomas comes back into the lineup after he's been in and out. Thomas, Kamara, Breeze, that trio hasn't really played together damn near at all this season and they're back for the playoffs and they're peaking at the right time and it spells a disaster for Chicago now the entity within the Saints team that a lot of people have started to give credit for but not enough credit is this is the best Saints defense in their franchise's history and I saying a lot because back in the early 90s and late 80s they had a very elite linebacking core known as the zone patrol now they don't have a linebacking core equivalent to that but when Quan Alexander was healthy, him and DeMario Davis formed a pretty underrated talent, underrated duo of talented linebackers. So sad to see him not be able to make this playoff run because he's out with an Achilles injury. Now, from a total defense perspective, from a defensive statistical perspective, the Saints, they're top five in everything, except sacks, and they're top 10 in there. So fourth best total defense, fifth best pass defense, fifth best run defense, they're fifth in points allowed, the tie for seventh in sacks. They're top five in takeaways with 26. And one of the top three sack leaders in the NFL that no one's ever heard of, Trey Hendrickson. Now, usually when we look at the Saints and we look at top sack leaders on their team, you think of Cam Jordan. He's been a top sack leader for years. But it was Hendrickson this year. When Cam Jordan had a down year, Hendrickson had 13 and a half. Huge year for him in a contract season. He's going to get paid by somebody. But as for this game... Chicago was, able, Chicago was able to make a playoff push when they were five and seven, I think, or four and seven at the time, because they rolled the coattails of David Montgomery. They took the 
primary decision-making offensively out of Trubisky's hand. Montgomery was able to have some big rushing performances against Minnesota, Detroit, teams of that nature. Now he's going to make a top-five run defense. When he's inevitably neutralized, Trubisky's going to have to put the game on his shoulders and make plays. And while there's been talks about Chicago maybe extending Trubisky beyond his rookie deal because he's shown growth from being not trash, I think this game will put everything in perspective that Chicago has to move on from Trubisky and put somebody else in there to make this team a true contender. They've been able to get to the playoffs twice with Trubisky as their quarterback. They've been able to get to the playoffs twice with Matt Nagy as their head coach. But something's got to give. After they get inevitably decimated by the Saints at wildcard weekend, which is what all of America expects them to happen to them, they got to close the book on this chapter and they got to move on because they're wasting a very talented defense because defensively they were up there the past two years in the elite squad now they've shown some slippage not tennessee titan slippage but i mean look at these stats they're 11 in total defense they're 12th against the pass they can be run on uh they're 17th in sacks which is amazing considering they have Khalil Mack, and they only have 18 takeaways so the turnover differential is negative four which is a recipe for disaster we have a quarterback that's not the most consistent passer a running game that has started to heat up, but it's hot and cold against elite competition. When you have those offensive deficiencies, you need a defense that's able to give you a short field. When those guys aren't able to take, create takeaways to make that happen, it puts your whole franchise in an in-game situation that isn't productive for all parties involved. So I expect the Saints to roll by double digits at the very least. If it's any close than that, it's a shock. If the Saints lose, it will be an unfortunate close to the Drew Brees era. And for a four-year stretch, I think guys are going to look at the Saints as that team that always came out the NFC South with immense hype, but was never, never able to get over the top because of painful postseason losses. Up next, the third city Seattle Seahawks against the sixth year Los Angeles Rams. This is probably the best NFC wildcard playoff game in the conference this weekend. Now, Seattle, offensively, they were cooking in the months of September and October. But since Russell Wilson put the ball into the fire too many times and forced a whole bunch of turnovers for the team, they've went back to what they usually are, and they've kind of diverged into what Seattle has been the past decade. They're an offensive team that's a little bit anemic, but they show up ability to run the football at the expense of their inability to protect Russell Wilson. And then defensively, while they're not the Legion of Boom, they're grimy, they're bitter, they'll break. They put themselves in pretty good positions to hold enough water to allow their team to be competitive and be in ball games. Now, Jamal Adams made the vocation statement of saying Seattle is one of the best defense in the league. Now, statistically, they don't. If we put, you know, 2020 in its full perspective, they're the 22nd ranked defense in the NFL. They're not an elite defensive team. As a matter of fact, the pass defense is the second worst in all of football. But the run defense is top five. Ever since they got Carlos Dunn left, they rose from not being able to rush the passer to being a top 10 sack team defensively, 46 sacks, and they're top 10 in takeaways with 22. So they take the ball away. They have very impactful defenders on their on their lineup. Carlos Dunlap's a pass rusher. Granted, Jamal Adams from his strong safety position leads the team in sacks, but he is a heavy hitter that loads a powerful punch. And they found something in the secondary. Quandre Jiggs is a pro bowler. He leads the team with five interceptions. But besides them, they found something in Shaq Griffin and that number two corner that's been ever so elusive, DJ Reed. When Dunbar wasn't able to play because of injuries, when Trey Flowers continued to show that he's more so a better fit at safety than corner, DJ Reed, a former Niner 
was able to come in within his team, be a boundary corner, which he always was in his young career, and play particularly well in a lot of months of December and November. And it's gotten Seattle in a position where defensively there's something to fear with. The biggest issue with them is offensively they've hit a wall. Dynamic playmakers, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, they could take the top off of defense. But at times they do struggle to run the football. And when they abandon a run to become pass oriented primarily, it's a recipe for disaster because Russell Wilson is a very good quarterback, but he's not elite enough, I think, to throw the football 35 to 40 times for a team to win. And they just don't have the offensive line to withstand 435-40 drawbacks. You know what I'm saying? They just don't. And that won't fly against the Rams because the Rams defensively, they've been legit all season. They are a team that's elite in every category. Number one defense, totally. Number one pass defense, number three run defense, number one in points allowed, number two in sacks. They don't take the ball away. Um, only 22 takeaways. That's still top 10, but they don't take the ball away in an elite raid. But they get to the quarterback with a vengeance. Aaron Donald proving once again he is, if he's not the best defensive player in all the football, he's number two. And he's a wreck. And when the Rams decided to invest all their money in Aaron Donald and invest all of their capital in Jalen Ramsey, they basically said, we're going to create that top-notch defense to go with our evolving offense that we expect in the next three to four years to reach the roof. While the defense has lived up to its capital, the offense is not. Jared Goff is probably a season away from not being a Los Angeles Rams starting quarterback. 20 touchdowns, 13 picks. He's completed 67% of his passes. He's almost on for 4,000 yards. But that last stretch of football in December was very bad. He laid an egg against the Seahawks, against the Jets. Got hurt against the Jets, I think. And he didn't even play John Wolford was their quarterback against Arizona. And he played better than what golf's played the last few games. And so it kind of puts leaves you wondering, what are the Rams when Jerry Goff doesn't have a running game behind them? They're not anything special offensively. Now, the biggest problem with the Rams are they don't have that bell cow running back. Maybe Cam Akers can become that in the next two to three years. But that's too far away. We're talking about the immediate present. And right now, he's a nice underrated running back from the state of Mississippi, but, you know, they're not a consistent enough rushing team. They don't want to stick to it, and I think a lot of it is because they know they don't have that consistent bell cow guy that can keep the defense honest with two-yard plugs, three-yard plugs before a long breakaway run down the sideline, like they had in talk early. And so with that being stated, I think Seattle eventually breaks the wheel of the Rams' elite defense. I think they're able to go, go over the top a few times. Uh, be able to make some big-time passing plays, and then defensively they're able to ride that momentum that they've had in the month of December and attack a Rams offense that's currently at its most vulnerable core. Seattle probably wins in about a 10-point victory, and they're able to move on to the division round where they'll play the New Orleans Saints. Now, 4 seed to Washington football team versus the 5th seed to Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, this could be the most microcosmal, Four five seeded matchup in wild card history. This is Ron Rivera's second time being with a sub five hundred. This is Ron Rivera's second time having a sub five hundred football team in the playoffs, and just like that Panther team that beat the Cardinals in wild card weekend, they have a team similar to that. Now they don't have a Cam Newton at quarterback. Alex Smith, who in his prime at best was a check down specialist with underrated wheels doesn't have underrated wheels and his accuracy has fluctuated 
on the downward spiral because of that. Now, from a defensive perspective, Washington's legit. They rush the passer at one of the more premier elite clips in all the football up there with the Rams and the Steelers. They're fifth in the league in sacks. They're fourth in points allowed. They don't stop the run particularly well, but their pass defense is the second best in all the football. And it's not because they have elite corners, although Kendall Fuller and Ronald Darby have played exceptionally well on the back end. Their pass rush is mean. And yes, Chase Young gets all the headlines. He's a great personality. Montez Sweat leads the team in sacks, and he's a budding star in his own right. So good news for Washington is they're building something. I think in the next two to three years that they're able to keep this D-line together and guys are able to stay healthy. They get that premier franchise quarterback. They'll be a contender not just in their division, but in the conference as a whole for years to come. But right now, they do have a shot to beat Tampa Bay if Tampa Bay doesn't play this right. If Bruce Arians and his pride comes in and he thinks we can just drop back and throw it 35 to 40 times again and test these corners, he's in for a rude awakening. But if they're able to run the football with Ronald Jones, who's back in the lineup after a hand, a broken hand kept him out for a month, they'll be okay. To beat a team that has a mighty pass rush, you got to make those pass rushers respect the run. You got to make them work in the trenches by shedding off blocks and getting to the ball carrier. And when Ronald Jones was in the lineup and they established him within their offense, Tampa Bay was a more proficient offense. But when they opened it up and let Tom Brady, who's had a fabulous year, 40 touchdowns, 13 picks, when they let him just wing it around the field with his illustrious weapons, they've made him susceptible to some very, very mighty hits. And while teams will be quick to say, you know, fans of Brady, yo, no bucks, oh, and it's not bad. They won't give him up 21 sacks. Yeah, but if you look at their last three to four games, they haven't played teams with elite pass rushes. In the playoffs, they're going to see a ton. Uh, even if the Rams don't get out of the first round, Seattle has a nice pass rush. Saints have a nice pass rush. Washington has a nice pass rush. Green Bay. Eventually, that offensive line that has been very susceptible against teams with mighty front fours, they're going to fold. And when they fold, Brady is showed under duress. He isn't the elite quarterback that he once was. And they're going to pay for that in the long run. So all that being said, I do think Tampa Bay is going to play this right enough. Then they're going to establish a running game at a clip that's proficient enough to get them points. And then defensively Tampa Bay, although undisciplined has a tendency to give up big plays. Washington's not a big play offense. A lot of that is because they don't have a quarterback that can make the vertical passes down the field that keep those opportunistic, but erratic cornerbacks honest. I think Tampa Bay wins it by two touchdowns. That's it for the NFL recap aspect of the playoff picture. I'm going to segue into the NBA topics and I've got a couple in particular I want to touch base on. The first one is, first one is it's the Clippers, man. Five and two, the Los Angeles Clippers. They're five and two first in the Western Conference. And I'll admit it, I was very skeptical about the Clippers coming into this year. Still am. I don't trust them. After they let me down in the bubble, I get it though. The bubble was a weird type of format. It was during a pandemic to just isolate professional athletes in one haven and tell them all you could do is play basketball, go back to your room, and then do that same cycle all over again. It could transform into an ideal passion. It can transform it can transform from an ideal passion that you love to be a part of to a consistent cycle of misery. You know, not everybody has the mental fortitude like LeBron. And you can make a case that he had that mental fortitude because he's chasing a ghost 
known as Michael Jordan. George, he wasn't chasing that like that, man. I mean, even before that, Clippers didn't have that continuity, didn't have that flow established before the pandemic. And so when things got really tight and they had to play basketball during the pandemic, they just weren't tight-knit enough to get through the caverns that they had to go across, not just as basketball players, but as individuals, as grown men. Still a pandemic, but you're able to go home and you're able to be amongst your family and be amongst life at your own risk, though, in terms of possibly being affected. And it's helped PG a lot. Now, PG, for a lack of a better sense, has been a very good regular season player. And I understand the semantic of people saying, listen, we don't care. What are you going to do in the playoffs? He's going to stick it up there. He's going to revert back to his pandemic P way off P ways. I get that. But you do have to embrace what he's doing in the now. You can't look at a future that hasn't been established yet. You got to look at what's happening in front of you in the present. He's averaging 25 and five through seven games and he's shooting at a 50, 50, 90 clip. Will he maintain that all year? Probably not the 50, 50, 90 aspect. I don't think so. I do think 25 and five is going to be maintainable. I think the assistant rebounds may go up because I don't know if the Clippers are going to solve that point guard issue. I think they should. Cause I think that's again, like we all thought coming into the year, that's the one thing they're missing. They're missing a floor general that, can create some symbols on an offense on the ISO uh, dribble drive aspects of George and winner creating sh- stuff for others doesn't work. Uh, but he's playing well. Serge Ibaka's playing well. And the unsung hero within this team that I've seen through seven games, Nick Batum has always been able to make a clutch shot from so far. Gives him great defensive length and energy. They're playing well and they got to get their props. Now, the only way I think they can come out of the West because the Lakers are still a tough team. Like I said before, obviously it's understandable and it's well-known. Kawhi and Paul George, they both got to play well. Because if one of them's off, that's not going to be enough to come out the West. I, that might be enough to win a playoff series. As we saw last year when Paul George didn't have it, it was enough to beat the Mavericks. But it was enough to beat Denver. They both got to be on. But the other aspect that is obvious, even in their wins, they need a PG. They still got Reggie Jackson on the team. He just doesn't have the productive, consistent basketball IQ to be a floor general. Great off-the-bench energy guy from a scoring perspective, and I don't even think they need that since they didn't trade Lou Williams, but he isn't a great leader of the starting unit or the second unit. They're trying to get by with Luke Kennard. I like Luke Kennard. I've liked Luke Kennard since he come out of Duke. I don't look at him as that type of player, as that type of playmaker. I think he's more of a spot-up shooter, secondary score within the starting or second unit you know pat bev's not gonna do it Kawhi's not that great of a playmaker he's improving so they're able to get by when paul george is the playmaker but i don't know how sustainable that is because you don't want to wear paul george down to a nub he's already got so much on his plate since Kawhi's not got off to a great start uh in all five of their wins paul george has played well and on both of their losses, he hasn't played well, especially the one against Dallas. I chalked the Dell against Dallas as, you know, too much Christmas stuffing. Went home for the holidays, came back. They just weren't ready. The Utah game, Paul George didn't play well. And I think that's how it's going to be this season. He's going to have to play well. So those statements he made prior to the season starting, I'm going to show you guys I'm worth all of my contract. You better, bro, because they need you. <laughs> like, they really need you to play well. Because if you're not on your best behavior, I don't know if Kawhi Leonard this season is going to have that 
consistent all-NBA hold on the team to where they're able to elevate and win with Paul George lacking. And that's just the truth. Another team I want to touch base on, they've kind of lost a little bit of steam with some tough losses against the Cavaliers and the Knicks. Kind of came down to some late-game decisions down the stretch that they weren't able to execute. The Atlanta Hawks are a playoff team. And I just wanted to see how the young guys would mesh with Trey Young. But what we do know for sure is Trey Young and John Collins are keepers. And everybody was saying, you know, a couple weeks ago, John Collins, you're an idiot. When Atlanta gave you that $90 million contract extension, you should have took it. He didn't take it. Bet on himself. It's early. If he can average what he was averaging last year before he got caught busted with the PEDs, if he can do 20 and 10, he's going to get that $100 million plus contract for sure. So believe in that. But Trey Young's feel for the game is there. You saw it his rookie year. The feel is ever more so heightened this season. But he has a nice collective of shooters around him. Bogdanovich is a respectable shooter. DeAndre Hunter's a guy that can hit a shot. Cam Reddish, even though he's hot and cold, he's a streaky enough player to where he'll have some nights where he'll make his two. Danilo Gallinari, he's that guy. The thing about the Hawks are not a great defensive team. And you do wonder when the shots don't fall from three, who offensively can create their own shots when the game slows down. So they remind me a lot of the Houston Rockets, which are which is ironic since Clint Capella is a part of the Atlanta Hawks of today, like he was a part of the Houston Rockets of the past with D'Antoni and them. When they were making shots, only two guys could create something off the dribble. And it was really one because when Harden got into that ISO zone, he completely put Chris Paul in a corner and just ignored his existence because he didn't involve him within the ISO game. So when they don't knock down shots, who can create a basket? Bogdanovich can... Danilo can, which is, which I think is why they got these guys on their team, just in case those three-point shots don't fall and it becomes a ISO basketball game in the half court. Not all the time, because you don't want that to be your offensive identity for 60 minutes. I say 60 minutes like it's football, 48 minutes. But there are going to be times within the game. Like someone close to me said, you're going to need somebody that's going to give you a bucket for two minutes, like give you like consecutive buckets in a one minute, two minute span. Like who's going to run me off six points? Who's going to run me off eight? We know Trey Young can. Bogey has the potential to do so. Danilo could in his past life, but he's kind of on the ending points of his prime. Currently, he's dealing with some injury bugs as well. That's my only thing with Atlanta. I do think they'll be a playoff team, but I'm also keen to the fact that I don't think Lloyd Pierce is the long-term answer. And I think Atlanta's you know, front office knows that, which is why they went out of their way to get Nick Bill as their assistant coach. Wouldn't be surprised that they kicked the boot or preferably kick the tires off of Lloyd Pierce and elevate McMillan into that starting role because he's shown up ability to be a pretty good NBA head coach. He was able to get the Pacers to the playoffs. Now they never got out of the first round, which is why he's not a head coach of the Indiana Pacers anymore. But he could be a lot better than Lloyd Pierce. And with the talent that they have, we can make a strong case. This team, if they fulfill their identity, will be much more talented than Indiana. We could say that, especially from an offensive standpoint. And I think once they're able to live up to that, they can go very far in the East, plenty of years to come. And so, yeah, um, with that being stated, you know, those are the NBA and NFL topics that I got for today. Um, I'm excited for this NFL playoffs. It's going to be something very interesting and exciting to watch. You have a variety of teams that present different aspects that they bring to the table. 
But before I go, I want to address a couple of things that not that aren't on, excuse me, that aren't on the itinerary that I feel like deserve to be addressed. Um, when I was thinking about making a podcast episode last week, but wasn't able to because of Kwanzaa and other New Year activities. The Patrick Mahomes hate, man, it's it's very, it's tough to hear. And I understand that, you know, it's a cust- it's customary for fans to hate on greatness as it continues its consistent dominance because to be a great player, you got to be consistently dominant for extended periods of time, not just a flash in the pan for two years. Like Cam Newton had to do it to you, Cam. And Mahomes, first three years he's been on, in the league for the Chiefs, he's been outstanding. So there was this imaginary stat that social media propped up out of nowhere called potential interceptions that Mahomes could have had. And they said Mahomes escaped 16 dropped interceptions, which is the highest total in NFL history. And I was like, yo, no, this stat is BS because no one's ever brought up this stat for any other quarterback ever that I've seen have a monster success that he's having. They didn't bring it up for Brady didn't bring it up for Rodgers didn't bring it up for Breeze, and then bring it up for Newton or Lamar. Like, why him? And, you know, I had some guys on the internet be like, well, this stat's existed since 2001. I'm like, I haven't heard of it then, if it's existed that long. And you know it's not a stat that anybody takes full account of because the elite, you know, websites, Pro Football Focus, uh, NFL, you know, NFL Networks, Insider Shows, you know, the check down, they don't bring this up. You know what I'm saying? Now, if you want to say pro football focus has its respective grades in terms of how to grade somebody at the position in terms of positioning and putting teams in harm's way, sure, they probably go to that minute detail as well to truly grade out who had the successful season at their respective positions to create some type of a conversation and whatnot with their viewers. But dropped interceptions isn't a stat that should dilute a person's productivity because it's not the quarterback's fault that a DB can't complete a play. Also, if we're going to do, if we're going to use the statistical aspect of a what if, because that's basically what it is. Like he almost, like if we're going to do that with that, then let's do it for, you know, plays that actually happen where we'll call back because of penalties. Let's do it for miss sacks. Let's do it for uh, incomplete passes for, for quarterbacks. Like let's, let's do it for them all. You know, it's like, let's say, yo, Josh Allen could have completed 70% of his passes if, you know, these guys didn't drop. They don't do that for those guys. And so I chalk it up as it's just hate for it's just hate for my guy Mahomes. And that's my guy. And I've supported him, you know, since he came onto the NFL scene. I, you know, in that draft when Watson and Mahomes and Trubisky were there, I said Watson, I said Watson was the best. And I said Mahomes was the second best quarterback in that draft. And I feel like just looking at him on tape, he had a chance to be a more accurate Brett Favre. That was a better decision maker. And he's shown that he's basically that. And he just hasn't gotten the love I feel like he deserves, mainly because Andy Reid and his coach and the weapons that he has. And so my response to those two things is this. Before Mahomes was involved within his coaching career, Andy Reid went to the Super Bowl once and didn't win. Uh, He went to the NFC Championship game five times and made it out once. So that means he lost four NFC title games. Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, individuals that chief haters love to bring up to dilute Mahomes' success. They say, yo, like he has Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey. They're elite players at their position. So it's easy for him to put up those numbers. 
before Mahomes came onto the scene, Travis Kelsey was probably one of the more underrated tight ends in all of football. Before Patrick Mahomes came on the scene, Tyreek Hill was a dynamic athlete, but he was never taken seriously as a top five receiver. Those guys come. Kelsey has the best year of his career as a receiving tight end. Those guys come. Tyreek has his best year as a receiver from a yardage perspective. He elevated those guys' careers from quality, solid starters. They belong in the league. I'm not going to say they're bums. And he elevated those guys to all-pro status at their position. Like We understand Tyreek Hill was an all-pro returner during the Alex Smith days. You got to give that up to Mahomes because he's able to make all the throws throughout all aspects of the field, opens up the offense for everybody. It makes everybody elevate their play. And so he's got to get some love for that. And he hasn't. He's not going to win MVP. Rodgers run away with that. But Mahomes has a chance to be a back-to-back Super Bowl champion. That hasn't been done at the quarterback position since Brady did it in the early 2000s, middle 2000s. Uh, He's going to have a league MVP on his belt. He's going to be a three-time Pro Bowler. Like, he's going to achieve immense amounts of success that not a lot of guys at the quarterback position. Deshaun Watson is talented as heck, and he's not in the playoffs this season. Obviously, situations help maximize a player's full potential. But to say that Mahomes is only a successful carbon copy of his situation, that's not fair. And you can't say that and then run around and say, yo, Stafford's underrated when Stafford's had great offensive situations as well. Not the situations that he's currently in now, but there was a time on his team, he had Reggie Bush, who was starting to reach the kind of de-escalating from his prime, but he was starting to have productive years as a running back. He had Reggie Bush, Calvin Johnson, Golden Tate. Ebron was a bust, but Ebron had talent. He didn't belong in the top 10 in terms of draft selections in that draft. And he didn't succeed. And to this day, I mean, you know, Detroit has solid receivers who are underrated, but they're talented. And Stowers put up nice numbers. But, you know, playoff time comes. If he's there and he's only been there three times, he doesn't want a playoff game. And so you can't call these underwhelming, inconsistent veteran quarterbacks, you know, underrated or undervalued or gems that need to be worshipped. And this guy right now in his prime is dominating. And you're literally saying he's trash. And I just don't agree with that. And we know there's various aspects of why that goes into that. Some of that isn't because he's great. Some of that has to do with race. And it's just unfortunate that still to this day, people's hate of a player creates opinionated narratives that aren't true. I, I respect if you don't like somebody because they're great. I respect that. Just say that instead of saying, yo, because he almost threw 16 potential interceptions. He's not as great as what he is. I'm like, huh? Like, that's not even a real stat that people keep track of. And so that's just something I wanted to vent about before this podcast closed. But we're going to wrap this up. I'm back, man. I'm back with it. We're going to be back with it on a weekly basis. Uh, like I said before, um, potential podcast episode the week probably was going to have a guest. Guest wasn't able to come through. There will be guests coming on this podcast for the foreseeable future. It, it's a potential that's going to be had. Uh, great talking with you guys. Great being back on it. It's going to be on Spotify and Apple Pod as always. We're going to, right now, potentially contemplate on maybe transitioning from YouTube and just posting on listening podcast sites like a Spotify or Apple Pod just so the viewers can continue to listen to it because that viewership is at a higher peak than what it is on YouTube. 
We'll see where that goes. Other than that, I hope you guys have a great day. We back with it. Independent Intel. Yours truly, KB. Peace out.